Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller, an African-American, licensed psychotherapist, professor, diversity coach, consultant, and author. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, we'll have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Portia Birch is a Black queer activist and Omaha native with a specific focus on anti-racism work and abolition. Portia was activated by the murder of Michael Brown Jr. and the subsequent protests and riots in Ferguson. As consciousness shifts towards reckoning with racism and white supremacy in the world, Portia is working to create spaces that are just and equitable as a way to build communities that are focused on healing and growing. She does this by curating and nurturing spaces to unlearn and decolonize behaviors that have upheld racism and white supremacy culture. Her priority is, and will always be the uplifting of Black people, Indigenous people, and other people of the global majority. She is intentional in her work, so that people working to be active anti-racists and social justice accomplices understand that by making the groups they advocate for their priority, the decolonization becomes a natural act and creates effective change. Welcome to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller. So, Portia, welcome. Welcome. I like to say welcome, too. Hi, how are you? I appreciate that, actually. That's a new one for me. Thank you. I've, I've all of a sudden feel welcomed. Yeah, we're in community together, and I think it's important for everybody to welcome each other. So I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. Also, thanks for trying to work this out. I know we've had a bunch of obstacles and barriers, but, you know, we made it happen, and that's what's important. So thank you for working with me on that. No, absolutely. I appreciate the flexibility, especially with life being life right now. Life lifing. Exactly. Exactly. Which brings me to my other first question, which is, how are you doing? There's so much going on in the world and in your body. How's, how's it all going? You know, it has been, it's been an interesting, I'm going to go ahead and say rough. I'm not going to tiptoe around. It's been a rough couple of weeks with, the, with being sick and then everything that's happening with Palestine and, and every Congo and Sudan, everywhere else, right? It's a, it's a dumpster fire outside. So it's been rough. It's been rough. It's been a lot of focus on making sure that I'm okay. I've been doing my best to kind of stay off social media from time to time just to kind of give myself a break. I mean, you know, I absorb a lot of things. I digest a lot of things. So I'm okay, but I'm not okay. That makes Understood. Sense. Yes, yeah. it does. And I make space for that because I think it's important for us to be honest about where we are, are in order to be holding each other in community. I think that's really mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. I appreciate yeah, that. I want to start with a bit of your history. And I heard you talk about your dad. And your yeah. grief journey. First of all, I'm sorry for your loss. And second, what was the legacy he left for you to carry on? Oh my gosh. My dad was the most incredible person in the world. That's that's the best thing I could say about it. The legacy that he left for me is leading from grace, to have that grace not only for myself, but for other people, to recognize that everybody's on their own different journey. And we kind of it's a combination of meeting somebody where they are while also encouraging growth. And I love that about him because I was a rebellious young child. I pushed every single limit possible and was just trying everything out. And the grace that he gave me as a parent 
recognizing that I was just trying to find my way, right? I made mistakes. I made some some not so great decisions, but he gave me grace to allow me to find my way to the path that I'm supposed to be on. And that's what I try to do with people that that are working with me as far as decolonizing anti-racism work. If you're joining it, let's say at 35 years old, that's 35 years of unlearning that you have to learn. And so I try my best to remember the grace that my dad would show to me and tell me about that we're just human beings and we're doing our best. And if somebody shows you that they're trying to really to hold them and hold them close and hold that space for them. That is so, such a gift and so wonderful that you had that growing up. That's really very special. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's, great- he's like, I'm a daddy's girl. You know, there's, there's yeah. two of us and there's a saying that says, you know, fathers raise their sons and love their daughters and mothers raise their daughters. And, love, and that was our household. I have a brother. So it probably helped that we were best friends and he saw me for who I am, even when I didn't know who I was. He saw me for who I was. And I think that his persistence in, in supporting me helped me get to where I'm, where I'm at right now and where I'm supposed to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So there's two of you and who's older? I am three years older. Okay. So we have mm-hmm. the firstborn thing as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm a big believer in birth order. Three years difference. Okay, that's mm-hmm. not a little bit of difference. No, How did your brother relate? I'm sorry, finish your sentence. That's a good amount of time between us, three yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. How did your brother relate to all of this special attention from dad or did he not notice because he had all this special attention from mom? He really didn't oh, notice. Yeah. He had the attention from my mom. He also played sports all throughout high school. So the, the attention was there, whether it was going to different tournaments or conferences along those lines. So he he didn't really miss it. My brother and I could also not be any different when it comes to our personalities. My brother is kind of stoic. He's quiet. He's very much the strong, silent type. He doesn't say a whole lot. He also doesn't take a lot of bullshit. So same with me, but more direct, more direct. So I think that's also another reason why he was fine with it. Because he's like, I'm going to do what I want to do. And he did. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you made space for each other. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Let's get into your why. What about your why? Both when you started adulting versus where you are now. How has your why evolved? If we're, let's take it back like 20 years. In my early 20s, my why was to figure out who I was. I grew up in a household where my dad was an associate pastor, so I grew up in the church. Military parents as well, so that type of background... I'm also queer, which I realized at a young age. So there's a lot of things I didn't get to explore about myself being in the house with my parents, just for no other reason. My parents had the rule, if you're in our house, you follow our rules, that type of line. Really, really common with black families. And I lived at home until I was 21 years old. So I didn't really get to do a lot of exploration about who I actually am until I moved out. Okay. So when I moved out, there were still some not so great decisions and choices being made because now I was set into this place of freedom. I had gone from living underneath my parents' house with following every single, I mean, breaking them, but, you know, seemingly following every single rule to now living alone and getting to do whatever I want. And that, it's a lot of freedom for somebody like myself. So in my 20s, it was just figuring out who I am. That was my why. I wanted to stay alive and I wanted to figure out who I am. My why today is to not only fulfill my dad's legacy, but also create one of my own. 
I don't have children. I don't want children, but I have extended family that I've created. My family, I like to call them. And I, I want my legacy to kind of spill over to them to understand that it doesn't matter how we get here sometimes. It just matters that we get here. You know, like, again, thinking about some of the wild rides I took myself on. And sometimes I, I look back and I think it's it's fun that I'm still here. But, you know, like, but yeah. wanting people to understand that it's OK to to be messy and to be silly and to be funny and to be expressive and yeah that's my why right now i want that legacy to continue i was talking about legacy with someone earlier and i think we have different legacies for different places in our lives you know mm -hmm. like i was Absolutely. thinking talking, talking about today like what's the legacy i want to leave at work versus what i want to leave in my life and i definitely right. think there's a difference in the two and and i love the idea of leaving something for someone that's just mm -hmm. so important to me you know yeah, I left the corporate world in June of this year. So, and that that's been equal parts terrifying and liberating. And I think that also shifted my why because when I was in the workplace, I had I had a why for that too. I any job that I've ever been in, my goal was to be the best I could be in it, excel as much as I can, find out how I can move up the ladder, all of those things that they tell you are important in the corporate world. And so my legacy for, for work was remember Portia as a phenomenal worker and a leader and, and all these things. And I realized that I can still have that type of legacy without working for somebody else. And so it's been nice to still kind of shift that. And I think that, I think that even if you have the two different legacies, they should still tie together. There should be a root. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that when you do, Absolutely. when you do leave the one, it can still carry over and you don't have to start this whole thing over again. And it also makes sure that you are bringing your true self to every situation, which, you know, can be difficult sometimes at work, but we still find ways to make sure that it's us showing up and not just a, 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 a butt in a seat, you know, something on, a, on an assembly line. So, I, yeah, I think it's important. I, I really appreciate you saying that because the last thing I want to, <clears throat> excuse me, sound like I'm saying is to split ourselves. So <laughs> I really appreciate you pulling that together because I do think they come from the same part of yourself. Right. It just shows up differently in each one. So I love that. Thank you so much. Absolutely. You've talked about reading White Rage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this was meant for weeks ago when we were supposed to get together. I'm, so still, I'm still reading it, so we're good. Okay. Okay, cool. <laughs> I thought about today. I was like, mm, I wonder if she's done with that book. <laughs> uh -uh. No, no, okay. I'm still reading so, it. But what is your takeaway thus far? And why should people join your Patreon to share in this experience with you? Mm -hmm. This book, first of all, it's beautifully written. I think it is the complete antithesis of White Fragility, which is a book that I will never, ever, 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 ever recommend. I get annoyed just the name of it. <laughs> I have so many thoughts about that. But reading this book from, the, it, it comes from a historical point of view, right? It's not any one person's opinion. It is talking about what actually happened and reading and seeing exactly how, you know, we were enslaved and then we were freed, but then we weren't allowed to have our own property or jobs or land and schooling. And it's so important to read because it is so parallel. It's running parallel with what's happening today every week. So on my Patreon, if you're a member, I read part of a chapter every week. I offer journal 
prompts for the people that are reading it. I want people to actually take something from this and not just have me reading a book to them. But what one of the things that we talk about every week is think about how anything that I read to you, you can turn on the news today and it's like you got the chapter from the book. I think the fact that it's not written from an opinionated point of view also keeps it important for white people to read because white people really, it is inherent for them to feel like they are being shamed or blamed for something in the past. And that is, that is something that they need to work through. And I like the fact that, that it being just a historical book, it takes that out of the way because then I don't have to worry about somebody expecting their feelings to be coddled before reading this book. It just is read this book read this book. And, you know, when I picked up the book at first, I'm like, the white rage title didn't make a lot of sense to me. But reading how people actually responded, community members, politicians, the president, the way they responded to Black people just existing, just existing, that's where that rage comes in, that they just really don't like us. <laughs> and and, it's, and it's, it's, it's really interesting to to understand how how much we are disliked and that it's been forever. And I really want people to understand that, that, you know, when we talk about race, it's not just to try to derail the conversation. It is truly, it's built into this country. It is, it's baked into this country. You can't escape it. And the more that people take the opportunity to decolonize and, and really kind of break down their, their inherent racism, they can see like, this has been going on for centuries. This is nothing new. And and hopefully it allows them to, to to take that moment and really shape how they how they approach the world today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I had a number of thoughts come up. I'm just trying to organize them. Your style reminds me a bit of Coffee with a Black Guy. And I had James on about a week ago and mm-hmm. he offers a similar kind of grace inviting people in conversationally while stating facts. Right. And so I've I've seen your social media where you really, you're rarely, you know, like, like pointing your finger and, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of getting at people. You're more, again, your styles are similar that you invite people in and you talk a lot about self-care and facts and your experience. It's really a nice blend of, of, I think what's required today that I no longer have. And, right. you know, I, I'm, I'm very grateful for the generations after me because I, I realize I, I got to tap out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's been too long of the invitations and, and now yeah. I'm just in a place where I don't have patience. So I, I appreciate all of that to say, I appreciate what you do. Thank you. I do what I do for black women. Mm-hmm. That's, it, it will never be a different answer and for the for the very reason that you just said, I don't ever want a black woman to feel like they have to do what I do. I know that I'm good at what I do because I was meant to do this. I know that. But it should never be a requirement of an of a black woman to even walk somebody through treating black people like humans, like remembering the humanity of it. So if I can ever take even just that little bit of weight off of somebody else's shoulders as part of hopefully fixing something in my lifetime that I'm going to do it, you know, and the welcoming part of me, I think that's also just a like a maternal side of me. I've always been very loving. A nickname of mine is Mama P. 
Mm-hmm. I care about my people. I love on my people. And when that transfers over into the teaching, that's when you get to see what you get to see, you know, where it's coming from grace. And, and, and But at the same time, there are still those moments that I do mm-hmm. say what I really want to say. Yeah. <laughs> where you are a human. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Uh-huh. I think you go through phases in your lifetime, you know, and, and I think I've been there many years and now it's important for me to recognize where I am not. And it really mm-hmm. allows me to appreciate what you all are doing. I, I very much appreciate it. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to ask you something. What do these all have in common? Karening, white tears, defensiveness, receiving the benefit of the doubt, apologies after the injury. I didn't know. I would never do that intentionally. What do they all have in common? Whiteness. <laughs> <laughs> it's whiteness because whiteness it, it, it inherently is a place of de- defensiveness. It is never at fault. It's white people never do anything wrong. White people expect black people, indigenous people and other people, the global majority to just give them a free pass to accept the same apology over and over again. The tears, the caring, the acting out because you didn't get your way. Those are all characteristics of whiteness because white people can get away with it Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. your melanated people cannot. I also think if we're going to tie it into just like a, a, an actual description, it's also part of the inherent racism. All of those behaviors that you described can be exhibited by any person. So I'm going to say their characteristics of white supremacy as opposed to, to racism, they can be exhibited. However, the response to them is what's different. And that's where the, the common ground is whiteness Mm -hmm. and what happens after that. I think one of the things that, you know, we need, the global majority needs white bodies to do in this country is to acknowledge how international anti-blackness is Mm -hmm. and and how ingrained in systems of oppression upholding white supremacy is. Mm -hmm. To, To not have those acknowledged or just, we don't need the validation, just take the ownership, right? And that's, that's what I think you're hitting on when you say that the characteristics of and the fact that, yes, anybody can be defensive and anybody, you know, who has access, particularly financially, can mm-hmm. get the benefit of the doubt. But when mm-hmm. it comes down to it, you and I both know race matters. It does. It absolutely does. To, to give you an example, I posted a video today and there was a, a the 49ers played yesterday and Chase Young, who's a defensive player, went and hugged his family up in the stands after this win. And there was a white woman that made her way down the steps and was slapping him on the arm trying to get his attention while he's talking to his family. She just felt entitled to his attention. And when he turned his head, she said, are you going to hug us all? Are you going to hug us all? So I just made the video. I was like, this is, yeah, this is the entitlement that white women have to spaces and people and things. And as expected, there was a white woman in my comment section that said, I don't think it's a race thing. White, hold on, white women do this to everybody, other white women, Latinx people. And so I said to her, I was like, you're sitting on top of the point. You don't like the fact that it's about race because I use the example of black women being this. And so that ties into your whole anti-blackness and how prevalent that is. That is something that is evergreen. And that is something that everybody in this world globally can agree on. And that's disgusting. If the one thing that everybody but one group can agree on is a hatred of that group, that's a problem, you know? And you're right with the white bodies recognize that it is anti-blackness, that 
excuse me, and with the anti-blackness, that is how non-white people can still uphold white supremacy because they're coming at us. We're the perfect victim without being the perfect victim. Mm-hmm. Perfect victim and perpetrator. We're, yes. we're, the, we're the only group of people who are both the victim and the perpetrator. And the minute we acknowledge victimization, white bodies will come at us and say, stop being the victim. Mm-hmm. And then when we react to that, mm-hmm. then we're the perpetrator. We're the mm-hmm. only group. Mm-hmm. That's a, that stop being the victim is it's a thought ending cliche that I've been thinking about. It's another thing that I've kind of been focusing on with some recent content. And one of the things I like to meet that with is if, if I'm being the victim, what am I being the victim of? Because I want them to tell me, if you can say that I'm playing the victim, if you can say that I'm victimizing myself, what am I saying I'm a victim of? Yeah. yeah. Y- you got to name it. You got to name it. You're saying I'm a victim because I don't have access to loans. Why don't I have access to loans? You know what I mean? So I, I-, I want people to tell me what they actually have to say. Yeah. Because I like people to say their own words. You're yeah. going to tell me yourself that you're an agent of white supremacy. I don't have to tell you that. You are going to tell me simply by me opening my mouth. That makes me think of a response I had to a troll. And you called me a victim. And I said, if I'm the victim, you're the perpetrator. And I'd rather be the victim than the perpetrator. Exactly. Exactly. Push it back on them. I, I will push something back in a heartbeat because I want, I want the truth out there. And they're going to say it. They will absolutely say it. Because another thing that whiteness will not allow is for them to be wrong in any aspect. Right. And there are sometimes that people can get things wrong and it's something that's a little bit innocuous and you just have to acknowledge that you got it wrong and and go forward. But then there are the people that will just stand 10 toes down (laughs) on being wrong because they cannot accept hearing that they're wrong. They have to be right. They have to be this moral authority in some way, fashion or form. It's fascinating while also frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you just described academia. And, you yeah. know, whenever, whenever I've, you know, been teaching clinicians and consulting with people, particularly high level academia, like doctors and psychiatrists, I always get that white fragility that's not fragile, mm-hmm. you know, and it, and it, it, it approaches you as if it's a question, but what mm-hmm. if, but how about if, as opposed to just receiving it? as it is what I say it is because I've experienced it. That's, that's all academia. They want to mm-hmm. find it somewhere in there where it might not be so, even while you're telling them and can't even point to how it is so. And the reason being for that is because then they can say they listen to you, but they just that's didn't true. agree with you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's what so, it is. So, so say a sentence about, I already know we're going to go into a two-part show. I already know. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Um, all right. So I'll do a couple more questions and then we'll, we'll go to the second part. Perfect. Say we both mentioned white fragility and it's actually, and it's actual aggression. Say a sentence about that. About the book or just a behavior? I, I don't even care about the book. Just the idea yeah. that white fragility is named as such. Okay. White fragility is something that it's named that way as a way to placate the feelings of white people. It is named white fragility as a way to infantilize white people to say that they are so, so precious and, and so need to be handled with care. That's why it's called white fragility. I don't like that phrase. I, I don't 
have it in my spaces because fragility, again, goes back to they're the person that needs to be protected from harm. Meanwhile, they're the ones perpetuating the harm on us. So I will switch it to white entitlement. I will just switch it to whiteness. But white fragility in itself is a misnomer. And it really just needs to go by the wayside because, again, it's still, it's centering whiteness, which is not what needs to happen with anti-racism work. White fragility is the antithesis of what it is. I agree with you completely. And it does need to go. You know what else needs to go? And I've been saying this for years. Mm -hmm. Allies. I'm so sick of, I'm so sick of allies. How can you be an ally in a war you created? It, It just doesn't make sense to me. And it's still being used today. How do we get both of those eliminated from the language of anti-racism work, decolonization work today? I, I, I stop it. I will stop the behavior. Like I said, I, I don't allow white fragility in my space. The same thing with ally. I think that anybody who's doing this work just has to stop it. Ally is not a self-appointed term. And I love what you just said. You cannot be an ally in a war that you created. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And, and, and also being an ally when it's a self-appointed term that means that you felt you were supportive to a group, that yeah. you did enough. You felt that and you don't get to make that decision when you are supposedly standing up for a marginalized group. So it, it needs to go away. We need to look at, at ourselves as accomplices and take that accomplice outside of the criminalized way that it's used. It's an accomplice in a war. We are in a war, essentially. Right. So we need accomplices. We need adversaries, not adversaries, we need accomplices, we need activists alongside of us. But that ally term, that needs to go away. And most, most people that are in marginalized groups don't say they're looking for an ally. They say they're looking for an accomplice. They say they're looking for somebody that hears them. They say they're looking for a support system because that is all things that have to be proven by way of action and behavior and intentional change and, and all of these things. And it just comes back again to not centering that whiteness. What, what's your goal? Is your goal to be a good person or is your goal to dismantle systems of oppression? Because you can't come at those two things the same way. We give white bodies so much credit when they're doing mm-hmm. any part of this work. It gets centered automatically just by the mere fact that it's a system that centers itself. And so if they're not, if these white bodies who are saying they're, they're anti-racist aren't calling themselves abolitionists and aren't working in a way, and they're not telling me they're tired or their feelings got hurt by what came through their DMs, I don't want to hear it, quite frankly. Right. You know, we've been right. here forever and we still keep doing what we have to do. That's something I also try to kind of cultivate in my comments sections where a lot of people get to see things is don't come to my space with how tired you are, how exhausted you are, how uncomfortable you are, how what I said made you feel. Feel all of that somewhere else because this is not the space for you. It also gives them an opportunity to learn what community actually is. Because that's another reason that's wrong with whiteness is that's individual individualism. It is every man for themselves instead of individuality, which allows us to have the same goal but approach it differently. It is my way or the highway with white people. It is if you don't do it this way and I do it this way, I'm better than you. And when I give that instruction to say, don't spill this out all over the place, I've had people that have been with me for a couple of years that come in and say, hey, we've got a discord over here where we kind of talk about things, our feelings, or I've got a group message 
That's what I want to happen. Find your people and talk about what you're feeling there and then come back when you're ready to work. But don't don't spew all that in a black woman's face where other black people are going to see it and see about how exhausted you are in doing the work of recognizing our humanity. That's a slap in the face. Exactly. We agree that black parents have to teach their children about navigating white supremacy and racism as soon as possible. Because mm-hmm. white parents decided the kids are too young to learn about the history of whiteness in America. Please mm-hmm. elaborate. <laughs> it goes back to the, the, the comfort, the centering, the coddling of white people. It's, infantilization starts from the day that white kids are born and it goes throughout their adulthood. They are worried about their children losing out on their innocence. They're worried about their children not having a happy childhood where all they have to worry about is going to school and playing on the playground and making new friends and maybe joining Girl Scouts or something. And they're negating the fact that Black parents don't get to have that same experience with their Black children because, number one, Black children aren't viewed as children. From the minute, from the moment a Black child can walk and talk, they are seen as older than they actually are. We see nine and 10 year olds being called young men. At nine and 10, that's a boy, right? And if white people understood that the conversations that black parents are having with their children is a way to protect them from their children and what their children are going to turn into because they're not having these conversations at this age, if, if, if white people aren't willing to understand that, they, need to, they really need to say, take a step back. You know, there's no reason why a black child at five years old can have a conversation about race and a white child can't. There's no reason at all. And it just comes back to, you want your child to have a childhood? So do we. You want your child to have some innocence? So do we. But since we live in a world where that innocence isn't there, we need to prepare them for what actually happens. And you have the opportunity to stop that cycle by having this conversation and getting them prepared to go and out to the real world where they hear all this other nonsense. But if they remember at home, well, mom said, or dad said, and this is different, it opens up the space for questioning, for the children even to teach the parents. You know, like, you told me this, but this example happened, or this happened at school today, and this is what I did. That's, a, that's an experience for the, the parents, too. So it just needs to be a zooming out and looking beyond individual situations. And I agree that, you know, white body culture is individualistic. And I like what you said about you can have an individual experience, mm-hmm. but when you are a part of the global majority, collective is the mechanism of operation. I mean, that's how we function. And so mm-hmm. it's not, it's not that we're not individuals, but we're just not individualistic. Right. That's the difference. We have a collective mindset. Our, we, we have community within our different groups, right? We know what it's like to have to take care of our own. We know what it's like to have to protect our own. We know what it's like to, to live amongst a society that doesn't like us, doesn't care about us individually. So we need to make sure we're okay, right? And, and leaving space for the different types of people is a beautiful thing. It's what's needed. So I'm going to wrap up. Thank you, and I'm going to wrap up this segment with one more question. Okay. You talked about the difference between community versus group, and it kind of, I think it's a good segue what we were just discussing, so I wanted mm-hmm. to get that in here before we switch it up. Yeah, the group mentality is, again, it's, it's all the individuals in that group that have to work the exact same way. 
They have to be doing the same thing from beginning from step one to step 10. Everything has to look the same. We have to talk the same way. We have to use the same verbiage. And if you step outside of that, then you're no longer part of the group. We had this all set up. This is what we're supposed to do. Community has a goal. And underneath that goal are the different people that are working for that. They're coming at the liberation, the, the abolitionist viewpoint, the, the healing viewpoint, but they get to stay who they are. Their, their goal is not to be exactly like the person next to them. Their goal is healing and liberation. So that's always going to be the difference. You want to be in community. You want to be able to stay who you are and find your people without losing who you are. That group yeah. mentality is finding your people, but then changing who you are to match up to that group. And that's, that is, that's, a, that's a quick and easy way to lose yourself and then stay stuck in upholding white supremacy. That's a really great definition, just for the record. Thank you. And I think it's a perfect place for us to end for this part. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for part one. Very Absolutely. interesting. Love having you here. Love sharing the space. And we're going to end this segment and pick up next time. Perfect. That's wonderful. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.